get to sing that as our closing hymn today, but when Judy was talking with me, she said, what should I play for the offertory? I said, oh, mighty fortress for this day. Nothing else would be appropriate. Uh, so she played it, and we'll sing it here in a little bit as we uh, close out our service shortly. You know, there's a, a lot of people in Baptist life who would say that why do we, why would a Baptist church talk about Reformation Day? Uh, because we're not Protestants, they would claim. We, don't, we didn't come out of the Protestant Reformation. We are of our own train, if you will, our own stream, if you will, in the course of church history, and, and we don't belong to any of that. We're all by ourselves. We've been perfect since the time of John the Baptist. Remember, he was John the Baptist. Not John the Presbyterian, not John the Episcopal. He was John the Baptist. And there are a lot of people who, with a straight face, believe that that's the case, that we have always been. And so to talk about the Reformation is to talk about something that is alien to us and foreign to us, but I don't believe that. There are basically three theories of how Baptists came about. There's the secessionist theory, which is also in Kentucky, where it was popularized greatly oh, 100 years or so ago. Uh, by a few guys called the landmark theory of Baptist development and that, that the landmarks go all the way back to the time of the apostles, to the time of John the Baptist and, and so all through history you see landmarks of Baptist churches. The, the, they weren't organized, they weren't developed as such but you see these guideposts or these landmarks. Another theory is we came out of the Anabaptists. Anabaptists were the rebaptizers. They believed that everybody had to re be rebaptized in their church in order to, to be able to be a part of the true church. And so the Anabaptists came out. But Baptists share very little other than baptism of believers by immersion. Uh, we, sh we share very little in common with the Anabaptists. Then there's what's known as the English separatist descent theory, which is basically what I subscribe to. And that is that... that out of the Reformation came churches all across Europe who, who set out to for, reform truth. It was, it was always about truth, by the way. The Reformation was always about truth. And so these churches came out. They formed other churches. Many of them were put out of the Roman Catholic Church because of their Reformation involvement. And so these churches went on. But yet out of that group later on came a separatist group a group that set themselves apart and probably somewhere around the year 1610, about 100 years after Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis to the, the Wittenberg door, in about 1610, you start to see congregations formulating, calling themselves a Baptist church. And by 1641, you find clear examples of, of churches with Baptist doctrine and practice and having all the same essential features basically that you see today. Now that's according to, to Henry Veter, who was a church historian uh, back in the early 1900s. But, but the point is Baptists have a great heritage that flows out of the Reformation. We are not first generation reformists or reformers. We are probably third generation coming out of what Martin Luther did. But nonetheless, we have a real foot and a real hold onto the great heritage of the Reformation. But the Reformation didn't start, I want you to understand, with, with Martin Luther nailing those 95 theses to the, to the Wittenberg door. Now granted, they, that did kind of accelerate it. That did kind of shake things up in a major way. Luther never intended to start his own church. Luther, as a matter of fact, was horrified that people would call themselves Lutherans. 
He, he just wanted to be a part of a body of a true church, and his desire was to reform the church, not move away from it. But because of those 95 theses and because of some of his other writings, it became obvious that the church was not going to tolerate someone in the church preaching and teaching the doctrines that he was declaring to be true that came out of the Word of God. That was his foundation. That was his formation all along. And I contend to you that not only are we heirs of the Reformation, but we need to be a part of a, of a movement that is continually reforming. Not just something that looks back and says, oh, we appreciate what happened 493 years ago. Or something looks back and says, we appreciate what happened even in the Southern Baptist Convention in the, the late 1900s when, when there was a Reformation back toward the truth. But a church is made up of, of people. Pastors and theologians are people. And they tend to sometimes get full of themselves so much that they move away from the truth of God's word. And we should always be reforming. We should always be seeking to say, what does God's word say? Where are, where are we in light of God's word? What are our practices? What are our doctrines? What is our polity in light of God's word? Not in light of how we've always done it. Not in light of what I think it ought to be or you think it ought to be. But what has God said and what has God placed before us in his word. The truth is that the Reformation was going on for several hundred years before Luther. There's a story of one particular instance that took place in Prague in what is now the Czech Republic uh, where there was a reformer who was declaring the same things that Martin Luther was declaring by the name of John Huss, H-U-S. John Huss was declaring that faith, uh, that faith is what ignite salvation, if you will. It's, it's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. It's not because of sacraments. It's not because of obedience to some kind of man-made systems. It's not faith plus something else, but it's faith in Christ alone. And, and John Huss was declared a heretic by the church. And, and he was even burned at the stake because he taught the very same, same things that Luther taught. Uh, history tells that, that when he stood before the archbishop, and was there declaring, the archbishop was about to declare him a heretic and declare him to be burned at the stake, Huss looked at, uh, at the archbishop and said, well, you may silence this goose or cook this goose or burn this goose, however you want to look at it, because Huss is the, the Czech word for goose. So John Huss, we say it was John Goose. You may cook this goose, but there's a swan that will come behind me who will proclaim this and who will be heard. I may be silenced, but he will be heard. It's amazing, a hundred years later, Luther came along, preaching the same things, declaring the same things. And, and in many cases, if you go to Europe now, especially in Germany and some of the other places, and you see pictures of Luther, you'll see a picture of Luther, and behind him will be the picture of a swan. Because they saw him in church history in that day as the swan who came behind the goose. Now, my former professor and friend, R.C. Sproul, uh, likes to add a little literary license to that story because that archbishop who died and who declared, uh, who declared Huss a heretic, had him burned, he died, and he was buried right in front of the Catholic altar there in the church in Prague, buried right there. Later, when Martin Luther was ordained, he was ordained in that church. Uh, right on top of that, of that, pre, that archbishop. And, and in the ordination of the Catholic priest, they would lay out 
on their face before the altar with their arms spread out in the shape of a cross, and there they would be consecrated, and there they would be ordained. Sproul said he likes to add this a little bit. He can almost imagine that when, Lu when, when Huss said to the archbishop, there will come a swan behind me who people will listen to. You may burn this goose, but there'll come a swan behind me. Sproul likes to imagine that, that the archbishop must have said, over my dead body. <laughs> because that's where Luther was ordained, over his dead body. Throughout church history, there is always someone or some group that is desiring to recover biblical truth. There's always a desire to recover what the scripture says as opposed to just what man says. If you look in Romans chapter 1 with me this morning, I read these verses as our call to worship, but these were the verses that gripped Martin Luther's soul. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 as he was preparing lectures on Romans to, to be taught. He was a professor. He was teaching theology. And he was teaching through the book of Romans. And he was preparing his lectures. By the way, if you want some rich reading, uh, the lectures of Luther on Romans are still in print. You can still buy them. And uh, it, it's well worth the, the $25 or $30 you would pay to spend time working through them. You won't rush through them, but they are rich. But as he was preparing those lectures, he came to verses 16 and 17. This is what he read. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Greek there is not specifically just for those living in Greece, but it means all Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk 2.4 which Ricky read just a few moments for us, uh, go for us during our scripture reading. The, the, the truth is, Luther saw this, and he was captivated by this, and he said, this is the essence. This is the kernel from which my whole life must burst forth. I cannot be ashamed of the gospel. I cannot, I cannot deny what the pure, simple gospel of Jesus Christ is in, in order just to stand in some kind of hierarchy or stand in some kind of good standing with the church. And, and so Luther read these, and they permeated him. I've, I've got a picture back there in my office. If you're ever back there, it's on a shelf up there, and it's a picture of Luther. And he's standing at a desk with a chain Bible on it, because that's the only way you could read the Bible, was go into one of the inner sanctuaries and read it. The common people didn't have it. And, and, nobody, and the common people couldn't go into the chambers, by the way. Only the priests and the monks could. But Luther is standing there, leaning over this desk with this chain Bible to it, and he's got sort of this pondering look on his face. And it says, uh, the, the title of that work is, the title of that piece of art is, Luther Discovers Justification by Faith Alone. And it's a picture of him in the Wittenberg Tower. There at the church at Wittenberg, as he's, as he's standing there, studying God's word, studying the book of Romans, and he discovers that it's not by sacrament, it's not by papal decree, it's not by being in the right place at the right time and, and doing something, but rather that salvation comes through the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that gospel is quite clearly explained all through Scripture. Paul did it in the first seven verses of, of Romans when he said, Paul, a, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of the descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, among all the Gentiles, for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Paul says there is the gospel. Uh, the gospel is from God. The gospel is through the scriptures and through the prophets. The gospel is according to the scriptures. It's according to all that God has said. It was, it was declared beforehand, promised beforehand. It's not just something that appeared on the scene when Jesus did. It's about the, the divine and human son of God, totally human, who was born of the descendant of David, totally divine, who was declared the son of God with power through the resurrection. And it has one purpose, and that is to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, for his glory. You see, the purpose of evangelism, the first purpose of missions is not just to go and do good for people. It, that's a side to it. That's a, that's a benefit of it. But, but, the, but the purpose of missions is that men and women might come under the obedience of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by that coming to Christ might be to the very glory of God. Everything we do, missions, worship, Bible study, prayer, everything we do as believers is to be centered in and focused upon the glory of our Heavenly Father, the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Well, you can imagine when Luther started talking like that, and started saying that, that certain things that the church had involved themselves in, particularly the indulgences. Now, understand that Huss had spoke out against the indulgences 100 years earlier. That's what got him in so much trouble and got him burned at the stake. Someone asked me this morning, well, why, didn't, why wasn't Luther burned? Why wasn't Luther persecuted? Oh, he was persecuted greatly. And the reason he wasn't martyred, the reason he wasn't killed, is because he ran and he hid. Uh, he came at one time when he was, when he was translating the New Testament out of the Greek and into German, he, can't, he had to go into town for a particular meeting in order to meet with people, and he didn't go in in his uh, vestige of a, a priest or a monk, but rather he went into town in the armor of a knight. It's hard to tell who somebody is behind all that steel and metal. He hid in order to carry out the work that God had called him to. He, he proclaimed the truth. He declared the truth. He translated the word of God. And, and yet, the church and the princes, the government, continued to stand against him in everything that he did. Finally, he was brought to the, to the diet of worms. Now, if you read that in the English, it's diet of worms. It's not what he was eating. But a diet was a council or a hearing, and Worms was the town in which it took place. And basically they stood there, and you, you can see this in a great dramatization of it in the movie Martin Luther, which came out in about 19, uh, no, about 2003. It's a great movie and very accurate historically. 
And basically they came in and they had his books and his pamphlets and all of his writings, his thesis laid out on a table before him and everybody else and his, his accuser stood on the other side of it, looked Martin Luther in the face and said, Martin Luther, will you recant all that you have written? Now he was a smart guy. He said, well, how can I recant all that I've written when some of the things that I've written agree with what you believe? And that went on for a while, and they finally said, you're, you're stalling, Martin Luther. We call on you to recant what you have written that is contrary to what the popes have said and what the councils have said, and we call on you to, to, to recant that. And this is what Luther said. This is his whole speech. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason for I can believe neither Pope nor Cardinals alone as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. This I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do nothing else. God help me. Amen. Basically what he was saying was, listen, I, I, I'll stand here and debate the issues with you all day. I'll talk about truth and I'll talk about doctrine. I'll talk about anything you want to talk about, but I will only talk about it in light of what God's word says. Well, the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century needs to be renewed and reformed in that manner in so many ways. Uh, I mentioned from time to time various preachers from this pulpit that, that do not declare the truth of God's word. And that upsets some of you if you like to watch that person on TV. Of course, I hope it upsets you enough that you won't watch that person on TV any longer. But, but the point is that the truth of God's word is what is valuable. doesn't matter how you feel about it. doesn't matter what you, where you get a tingle or an excitement about. What matters is, what has God said? Because that is the final analysis, that is the final judgment of everything you believe and I believe and that we proclaim. What has God said? Nothing else matters. Nothing else at all. Well, Luther went on, and, and he saw many things happen. He was excommunicated from the church. He was put out of the church, and, and, and others followed him, and other things happened. He, he ceased being a monk, and so he got married. So, uh, you know, that's a, uh, uh, that was a plus for him, I guess. He's made several statements on marriage, even written a book or uh, a pamphlet on it that was quite interesting to read after years of celibacy. And now he was married to Catherine who was a fallen nun, by the way. So they kind of got together, and it's kind of an interesting story. But he stood firmly on God's word. And out of that Reformation came what I sometimes refer to as the, the cries of the Reformation, the battle cries of the Reformation. Uh, if you read my Grace Notes article this week, I had a picture in there of some stones that had been the, the, the foundation of the, of the church sign at, at, at First Baptist Sweetwater when I pastored there in Orlando. And there was a big stone at the bottom that said, what mean these stones? And, and it had a question mark, and then it had the passage out of Joshua where they crossed over the Jordan River, and they, they set up a, a, a memorial of stones, 12 stones for each of the tribes. And, and, and he said, in the future years, your children ask, what mean these stones? you'd be able to tell them. 
So we took that big stone with what mean these stones and then five other stones stacked on top of one another that contained in them these five statements. They're very simple. We even put them in the Latin and that really threw a lot of people off driving by the church. Uh, they, they, couldn't, they, they thought we were a Spanish church because it, it looked more Spanish than it did English. And so we had those stones out there, but I put together a little booklet, a little track for the church, about oh, 10 pages long. And I said, here, I want you to have this. I want you to learn this. I want you to have to read it. I want you to memorize what this says. And then when somebody at work or somebody in your neighborhood says, what in the world do those stones mean? Which is what the question at the bottom said. What do those mean? You can say to them, this is what it means. The first one was sola scriptura, by scripture alone. That was the foundation of Luther's heart. That was the foundations of Luther's call to the church. Let's get back to scripture. Let's see what God has said, and let's believe what God has said, and let's adjust everything else in line with what God has said. I don't know where he got that idea, unless it was maybe 2 Timothy 3. Verses 16 and 17 where the apostle Paul said all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Or maybe it was Psalm 19, 7. The, Lord, the, the, the word of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I mean all through scripture it points to itself as being the foundational doctrinal uh, treatise that we are to, to know and to live by and to base everything on. That's how God has spoken. And, and God, by his Holy Spirit, uses his Holy Spirit to enlighten that word to us today. And the primary way he speaks to us today is by Scripture alone. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't use circumstances. That doesn't mean he doesn't use the counsel of other people. But let me tell you something. When somebody gives you counsel from somebody else, you better evaluate it in light of God's word. And if somebody is counseling you and encouraging you to do something that's contrary to the word or live your life some way that is contrary to the word, then you had better say, whoa, I want to base my life on sola scriptura. The, the second battle cry was solo Christo. Or you may see it written solus Christus. Solo Christo just simply means by Christ alone. John 14, 6 said, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Or Acts 14, 12, where, where Luke records the apostles saying, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is not in just any religion. Salvation is not in just being sincere in whatever you believe, and, and God will somehow take that sincerity as the ultimate criteria. God says in his word that salvation, life in him, is through Christ alone. Based on what scripture says, based on Christ. The third cry, battle cry of the Reformation was sola gratia. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Romans 3.11 says, There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And then John 6.44 says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or John 6.37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. It's all based on the grace of God. 
that's why when, when Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians, turn over with me quickly to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And there, the apostle says down in verse 8, 9, and 10, or really 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Salvation and truth comes to us by grace in Christ by his word. The, the, third, the fourth cry was sola fide. Sola fide is by faith alone. And, and there Paul, writing that passage I just read out of in Ephesians 2, he talks about, starting in verse 5, he said, even when we were dead in transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By his grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That was the great truth of justification by faith alone. It's not justification by works. It's not, I believe in Jesus, and now I'll try real hard to live a good life so God will weigh in the balance one day and say, well, you believed in Jesus, step one. Your balancing was all right. Step two, you're okay. Now, I believe faith leads to good works. Don't misunderstand me here. I believe if a person is in Christ, they will do good deeds, good works. That, that, is, a, that is an expression of what has taken place in a believer's life. But those good works no more find you favor in the sight of God than that chair you're sitting in does. It's, it's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of what he has done and a matter of your putting your faith and your trust in him alone. Now, now we live in a day that basically has distorted that truth. And they distort it in one of two ways. They say, oh, so you believe if you just have faith in Christ then you can live any way you want to live. You can, you can say, I believe in Jesus, and then go live like the devil, and, and it's all right. You said the right words. You did the right thing, so you're okay. No, I never, never that's not true. That's a distortion. And, and you cannot distort that. Others will say, oh, no, it's, it's got to be both. You've got to have works and, and faith together, and they've got to stay, and if you quit doing the works, you lose the faith. And, and I mean, it's, it's a distortion on both ends of it. The truth of the matter is that when you are in Christ that works will initiate forth out of your life but they don't earn you favor with God Jesse Mercer who was one of my Baptist heroes of the early 1800s in writing his uh, his statement of faith 10 points was all it was but he made this statement about good works he said good works justify us only in the sight of men and angels oh that was a Intriguing way to say it. Good works don't justify us in the, in, the, in the presence of God. Or good works don't justify us in the eyes of God. Faith does that. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone, all through Romans, all through Ephesians, all through the Bible. But it is good works that justify us, not the same type of justification, but in other words, demonstrate to men that we belong to Christ. 
And beyond that, demonstrate the angels. Do you know that as a Christian, you are teaching the angels what grace is all about? Scripture says that. The angels long to know the grace of God. They don't understand it because they're there with him. They're in perfection. They're created beings there. They just don't understand this matter of grace, how, how God could take sinners and God could take rebellious people and he could transform them through faith. And, and your good deeds, your changed life, justifies you, shows forth to, to angels that you belong to God. I don't know, I, I find that kind of intriguing. I find it kind of exciting that God does that kind of work in us. And then finally, the fifth cry of the Reformation, which was the pinnacle of it all, was solo deo gloria. To God alone belongs the glory. You can go all through Scripture. You can start with Paul talking to the Galatian Christians in Galatians 6 when he talks about the cross. He said, I will not boast in anything except the cross. I won't boast in my good works. I won't boast in what I've done. I won't boast in, in the church. I will boast only in the cross because it's in the cross that the glory of God is seen most fully. Or 1 Corinthians 6.20 when he says, for, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You've been bought. You've been purchased at Calvary. A great price paid. You, you've been bought. So now in your body, glorify God. Or 1 Peter 4.16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but, that in, but in that name, let him glorify God. You know, we're going to, in, in a couple of weeks, on the uh, 14th of November, Lord willing, on Sunday evening, we're going to talk about the persecuted church in the world. And we're going to have a service just centered around that. And, and that's something we don't think about as Christians very much. You know, that the persecuted church, heavens no, our church doors are wide open. There's no government interference to speak of. Uh, it, it's going to be a little more over the years, but none to speak of. And, and, and we come and go. Nobody, we don't have to worry about having our IDs checked to, uh, to see if we can do anything because we are or not a Christian. It's not it. The churches are free. It's not that way across this, uh, across this world. We shared on Wednesday night, I may have even shared in here on Sunday morning, that, that a group of Chinese believers were heading to the Lausanne uh, World Conference on World Evangelization in, in Cape Town, South Africa, just a few weeks ago. On Sunday afternoon, they all got to the customs and passport checkpoints, and they were all denied to leave the country and had their documents seized from them. And they said, we're not going to let you go for your own good. And many of the churches in China that hold to the word of God are underground churches. They're, they're hidden there. They're hiding from the government for fear of retribution against them. They are being persecuted, and they are even dying. Just last week, a North Korean pastor was murdered for his faith. Nothing else. In the Middle East, uh, in, in the Gaza Strip, uh, a man opened up about a year and a half ago, two years ago, a, a Christian bookstore to just try to get some literature out in the Gaza Strip and the, the, the authorities came in and took him out and killed him and left him with a widow and two small children which some friends of mine just a year ago or so helped get the wife and the children out of there and into some security. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing that around the world 
We don't understand what Peter's talking about. If anyone suffers as a Christian, we don't suffer as a Christian. But, but if you do, let that name, let the name Christian in your life glorify God. In other words, don't back down. But glorify God. Or I love Job's statement. In Job 1.21, when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or Habakkuk, as, as Ricky read in the first two chapters at the end of that book, when Habakkuk makes his final statement of praise to God, he sees what's coming. There's going to be, the Chaldeans are going to destroy. The Chaldeans are going to overcome Jerusalem. And they're going to be taken captive and everything. But at the end of that book, after Habakkuk realizes what's coming, he says, listen, though the crops may fail and may, though, the, though, though the flocks may not, may not increase, Yet will I put my trust in the Lord. Yet will I glory in the Lord. You see, the Reformation was about a, a redirection. The Reformation was about getting back on track, on the track of the Word of God, on the track of the truth, on the track of the Scriptures from which it had strayed. Now, unless we think we are perfect, there's a need for that every day, both individually and as churches. We must constantly come back with the, the words of Luther when he was standing there at the, the Diet of Worms when he said, listen, I, I cannot believe what others say that does not correspond to God's word. I have been, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Yeah, I, I pray that that would be my experience. I pray that that would be your experience. That the word of God would become such a treasure to you. In Psalm 19, David said, it is a treasure. It's like better than fine gold, better than silver. It's a treasure. I pray that the word of God becomes such a treasure and such a pleasure. He said it's, it's, it's sweeter than the honeycomb. Pray it would become such a treasure and such a pleasure in your life that your conscience, your life, and everything about you would be held captive by the Word of God. You say, well, I'll tell you something, Bill, I don't want to be held captive by anybody or anything. But you see, you will be. You will be. If you're not held captive by God's Word, you will be held captive by idols, by the world, by your own flesh, by any, any number, myriad of things. Something will hold you captive. I just want to be like Luther. I want to be more like Christ. I want to be held captive to the word of God. And I want to be able to say, say with Luther, and I hope you will too, here I stand. I can do nothing else. That's what I named my blog. The name of it is Here I Stand. I can do nothing else. Because I wanted, to pro I wanted to proclaim truth and nothing else. I wanted to proclaim godliness and nothing else. Pointing to Christ. Pointing to the scripture. 
pointing to the grace of God, pointing to faith, by, justification by faith alone, and pointing in such a way that everything is for the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word that is truth. We are faithful, we are grateful, O Lord, for your faithfulness, even when we are unfaithful. And Father, we pray right now that we look to the cross, we look to the scriptures, and by your Holy Spirit, you will captivate us with your truth. Father, I pray for men and women who are here this morning that don't know you. I pray your Holy Spirit will work in their life to draw them to faith in Christ. Pray, for Lord, for others who are here that you just need to, you just need to do a work in their life. I pray that right now you'll open their hearts and open their eyes and let them see the glory of the cross. Thank you, Father, for this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.